Hello, heroes, and welcome to Session Zero, a podcast exploring role-playing through a psychological perspective. I'm Steve Discont. And I'm Porter Green. And today we'll be discussing personal growth and development. Personal growth and development sounds like something that's on your HR report. Uh, you know, there are developmental there are developmental goals. Uh, personal growth goals and if you know the nice way of saying that someone is performing poorly is we have areas for development and growth <laughs> but i think it also is a really important concept in terms of just peopling that we neglect a lot because we're not taught that we're supposed to have our own goals and our own things we want to grow in and when we're doing stuff like gaming we can use it as a tool to grow and to learn and to practice new skills now i'm confused because i feel like Western society tells us we absolutely should have goals, but they're all career focused. Well, capitalism. We should have capitalism goals. We should be better workers <laughs> for the man. That is what Western society really is about. Okay. I'm a terrible influence. I mean, I I, I have opinions. <laughs> but no, it really is because our culture is very focused on and, and directed by earning and what you're worth and wages and productivity, which is kind of like code for how can you monetize your time. Mm -hmm. And I think what we're really talking about here is personal growth from the lens of values. What do you see as being things that you want to improve about how you walk in the world? How would you like to be more like your favorite character from, I don't know, your favorite anime or your favorite TV show? Or in your case, we've talked about before, how would you want to be more like Nor? Right, exactly. You know, what would Nor do? Probably stab it, but still. Yeah. Uh, certain aspects of that you can't take into modern society, I think. True. Much as I'd love to stab people who are rude, mean to me, or generally enact isms against me, it's probably not something that I can actually do in my day-to-day -day life. No, unfortunately. Uh, I think there's this thing called laws. Yeah, laws. But Sometimes still. a barrier, sometimes they're there for our protection. Still, yeah. Yeah. But like the whole attitude of being independent and strong is something that I learned in part from my gaming characters, nor included. No, in psychology, I feel like there are certain areas of psychology that really foster and encourage this these ideas of growth and development more than others. Mm -hmm. And I want you to correct me if I'm wrong here, but I feel like there is a divide between what's known as counseling psychology and between clinical psychology in with, with regards to like that strength-based development approach. For sure. Counseling psychology is very much like a strength-based uh, model where it's more about sort of what you can do in the moment and how you're behaving and how you're changing behaviors, whereas clinical psychology is, is just broader. Clinical psychology is the overarching umbrella of what the clinical relationship is, and it covers like all of the different sub-branches, sub like your testing and um, your counseling and all of those pieces. Mm -hmm. Whereas counseling is more about, I mean, they, all these people do therapy and are all involved in the therapeutic process in different ways. Sure. Counseling is more about behavior and strengths-based. And then you have like social work, which comes out of policy and empowerment. And then clinical, which is more about clinical growth and meaning. So it sounds then that the, counts, the area of counseling psychology would be a really good place to look to when we're exploring these ideas of like personal growth and development. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the sort of the con the constructs have been coined from a counseling psychology perspective. Mm -hmm. Well, there's there's some of that too within industrial organizational psychology too. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there's a lot out there about like training and development and having people define what their own personal growth goals are, either professionally or developmentally. Mm -hmm. And if you're in a place where you want to support someone's development as say 
a leader or a manager or even just in the capacity of the role they're already doing, if a person can define what those goals are for development, you can help guide them in that direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, goal setting in a professional context can be so empowering. And when it's done well, it, I think it makes the whole organization better. I absolutely agree, especially, well, with the important thing that we keep in mind that as long as the organization supports it from the top down. Of course. Because if, say, you middle management is absolutely in support of you know, giving learning opportunities and development opportunities to people below, but people in much more senior positions in management don't support it or don't believe it or won't put the resources to it, it's going to go nowhere. Mm-hmm. And that actually shortchanges everybody, I think, because what an agency or an organization really is is a sum of minds working together. And if you allow people to speak to their strengths and to grow into them and to use things that interest them and goals that they have, you end up with cooler, more robust stuff at the end of the day. I absolutely agree. So bringing it back to role playing and to gaming, though, how do you think we could factor personal growth and development into role playing? I think role playing is all about personal growth and development because role play itself is a tool that we use to get better at things. It's a type of practice. Mm -hmm. And role playing games are just a really fun and interesting way to practice things like social skills or um, delegation skills, planning skills, Mm -hmm. ways of interacting, all sorts of different things in like those social realms, really. Sure. And in in I.O., you know, in training, we use role playing. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's definitely not nearly as fun as the role playing that the heroes might do. Mm -hmm. But having a person practice out those, as you said, negotiation skills or particular types of management skills is a safe opportunity in a training session for someone to learn apply and practice the skills that they've just been taught. Absolutely. And role playing can be really fun. And it doesn't have to be like all the way into like the type that we do as heroes or that you and I do, Steve, to be mm-hmm. fun. But ours is definitely, I think, the most fun to yeah. do. I, I think so. I mean, role playing, absolutely. We use it in psych a lot too, both to learn about how to sit with people that have different ways of presenting and to practice doing different techniques or to practice getting ready for a hard conversation. Well, I think what might be interesting for hearers to know is how you and I have used it in, I would say, both of our former clinical training. Sure. Uh, I mean, you're, you are still a clinician. I'm formerly a clinician. And role-playing is actually really essential in counseling and clinical programs because that's when you can learn how to work with and recognize either people who are dealing with certain types of pathology certain types of mental illness or dealing with certain types of family structures. Absolutely. A really common thing we do in clinical training is you make up like a proto-client or a proto-family if you're doing family systems work. And then you assign roles to a bunch of other clinicians. And then you act out those roles while somebody is the therapist. And you try to let go of your clinical hat and be the person you're assigned in that moment. Mm -hmm. Or I know when I was originally learning how to do uh, clinical interviewing Mm -hmm. and learning how to really get into the therapeutic process, Someone would take on, you know, would, they would come up with an individual or take on those examples and you would practice going through, say, for example, the that first session, the intake session where you're mm-hmm. getting to know everything about the person and learning to, to explore their family history, their mental, their mental physical diagnosis history, their drug use, things like that, because one, you might not have the experience beforehand. So mm-hmm. you are taking the opportunity to build that skill. But even in the role play, you're also, again, you're doing it in a, say, in a context that's safe because as you're developing the skill, you might make mistakes, you might make errors, but then you can learn from those errors. And it's in a low consequence environment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's one of the great strengths of role playing is that 
there are no consequences because it's not a real client and it's not a real conversation with your mother or conversation with your partner. No, role playing it could be a conversation with your pretend partner. Sure, but then you you get to react and experience it in that sort of low stakes way and it makes it easier to have the real conversation Mm -hmm. so then when we're looking at using role-playing as a we'll say vehicle for personal growth and development there has to be particular ways that a person can go about doing that and i think one of the first ones is for a person to consciously decide when they're going into doing either uh, larping a character or developing a character they're going to role play is to decide there is a particular thing they might be wanting to learn and develop in. Mm-hmm. It could be as simple as being really socially anxious and deciding you want to try tabletop role playing or LARPing and expecting that you're going to be uncomfortable and that the structure of the game will give you a support to let you try being social in a new way. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there are actually five types of learning outcomes that a person can go towards mm-hmm. when they're looking at personal growth and development. These are according to researchers Gagne, Briggs, and Wagner. And so these five different um, learning outcomes are things you can think about when you're wanting to develop, when you are saying, I want to grow in these capacities. So the first one of these is intellectual skills. These are the things we associate with like concepts, rules and procedures. Um, For example, when we when we know a mathematical equation, that mathematical mm-hmm. equation is part of the this procedural knowledge that we might have about how to do a certain particular type of mathematics. Mm-hmm. So if you know a statistics equation, that's really procedural knowledge because you know here's how this gets added up, divided, and here's what this will lead to in the long term. Mm-hmm. And, you think of a gaming example immediately, but go ahead, finish. So for a gaming example. It could be about knowing the procedures that are needed to, for example, if you're going to, you want to play a mechanic and it's an excuse for you to learn about aspects of a car, Mm -hmm. you might look up this information so you know these are the things that need to be done to, say, fix an engine. Mm -hmm. Or for example, I've never learned more about how an ambulance actually works and what emergency procedures were actually like until I played a Shadowrun dock wagon game with a bunch of EMTs. Dock wagon game? So that's when you are basically the insurance policy in Shadowrun and you are paid by rich players to go out and save them when they've gotten themselves in too far. And you go and shoot up all the bad guys and take their body away to be fixed at the hospital. No. So there's a whole sub subset in Shadowrun gaming where you play the dock wagon team and you go in and get high powered clients. And playing that with like two military guys and a bunch of EMTs meant that everything was technically incredibly detailed. And Shadowrun's already a very detailed game, but just sort of the feel and experience. I know a lot more about that type of medicine than I ever would have otherwise. Mm-hmm. Well, and some of that, what you just brought up too, is another area of, of learning outcomes. So one of those is uh, verbal information. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Often in psychology, we might call it declarative information because it's things that we can declare or state about something. And you said like you had learned so much about medicine just from playing in, you said, that dock wagon game. Mm-hmm. And that is verbal. that is verbal information that you can learn. You could say like, well, this type of medicine is used when someone is experiencing potential heart failure. This is what we use if someone is in uh, anaphylactic shock. That type, of, that type of factual information is something that you can learn. Mm-hmm. So if you're wanting to learn more about, say, medicine, you might intentionally play a character that specializes in that type of stuff because it might give you motivations or reason to take that knowledge from the real world and bring it into your fantasy game and your Mm -hmm. in your uh escapist exploration yeah and when you interact with something and and use words and terminology about it and plan how you're going to use it even if it's in a fictional space you're becoming more comfortable with it 
and you're in sort of integrating that knowledge more deeply inside of your thought processes. I think it also makes your performance, in a sense, look that much more impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, I know actually yesterday, site tangent, I went and saw a friend of the network, uh, Todd Page, perform at Comedy Sports here mm-hmm. in Chicago. And there was a performer who was on stage with him who they were doing like a science setting. And she, out of nowhere, starts pulling all this biology information because the setting was biology, like it was, they were supposed to be biologists. And she was pulling out all this really complex knowledge. And at, at the end, of it, I was like, did you go to school for this? Because this is really impressive. And that was like really great. She's like, oh, I will pull out this information anytime I have, I have an opportunity. I have a degree in it. I'm like, perfect. Yeah. And it gives you an excuse to use something that you're proud of. So another area of personal growth, motor skills. Now, that might not come up as frequently in, say, tabletop. But I think that definitely can come up a lot more in LARP. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, if you look at the Society for Creative Anachronisms or if you look at LARPs that are much more physical, uh, what often get called as boffer LARPs, mm-hmm. um, there are often opportunities for people to get involved in crafting, get involved in developing and creating objects that other players can create. And this is these are opportunities that through your gaming – you can develop eye-hand coordination. You can improve and develop your uh, manual dexterity. Mm-hmm. And you are learning how to craft and build various things, be it pottery, clothing, or pretend weapons. Point is, you're still learning and developing your motor skills. Absolutely. And in things like the SCA or certain types of fighting LARPs where there's emphasis on technique, you are learning martial skills. You're learning mm-hmm. martial arts. I mean, in the SCA, I'm a veteran of the SCA, and I can tell you that, like, um, the rulers in that organization are, are selected by martial combat. So the kings are all kings by right of combat or queens. So the, it's very intense. And like a crown tourney is a very cool way to see that skill happening because people have trained for years to be good enough to win these tournaments. Well, heck, look at our friend Jim who trains and teaches fen- mm-hmm. actual fencing to people in the SCA. Mm-hmm. Uh, just wow. <laughs> yeah. Like I always say, if you ever come into my house and like, we always joke that the first thing we all reach for is a sword because we all have all this training from the SCA. Probably not the best plan, but (laughs) whatever works, I guess. I think one more, you know, cognitive strategies is one of the five learning outcomes. I think it's a little less relevant here. I think um, one that I really like though is attitudes and preferences, Mm -hmm. because I think when you, it might not be an initial goal that you might have in role playing, but learning to become more comfortable with other people in a social setting, for example, mm-hmm. might be a, deve- a way that you might develop when you're role-playing or LARPing. And if you think about it, role-playing problem-solving uses cognitive strategies all the time. Like one of the ways that we actually use D&D therapeutically is when we're working with teens in an IOP, which is like an intensive um, outpatient setting where you meet for multiple hours a day, is we have them play D&D together like on a Friday afternoon, and they're forced to problem-solve as a group, mm-hmm. which teaches them the cognitive strategy of compromise, cognitive strategy of delegation, right? And it also helps people build social skills, which are, in fact, cognitive strategies. Sure, and I think another way is, too, is that you're learning how and when to use the, your, your, your various skills you're developing mm-hmm. or the information that you have. How to use humor appropriately, how to speak up in a conversation. I feel a lot of people who are in role-playing could learn those, Mm -hmm. but clearly not any of you heroes. No, definitely not. But like how to make a class clown into a strength in a business environment is something that I know a lot of people learned by doing gesture roles or talky characters in gaming. Mm -hmm. That's just one example that comes to mind. So kind of thinking around that then, how could role-players go about making themselves be better, either in whatever they're hoping to develop and grow as? 
Well, when we're talking about learning in a group and building skills as a group, um, the person I always think of is Vygotsky and the idea of scaffolding in the zone of proximal development, which is the idea in learning theory that we all in a group work to get to where the best people in the group are at something. So if you are a shy person in a group full of talkative people over time, they'll help you and bolster you to get less shy, right? Because the way that we learn is first we see someone do something and then we have a teacher help us to do it until we're able to do it ourselves. And that's our zone of proximal development. It's the zone where we can take in new information but can't yet do it ourselves. Mm -hmm. And in gaming, that might be a player who... Um, plays a social character for the first time when all I've ever played before is like a, a, a slow talking tank and they try to play act their very first negotiation and they struggle really hard. But then another player who's played a bard for five years can step in and give them some suggestions on how they could do it better next time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they, the beauty of gaming is you always have the dice to fall back on. So if you roll a 20 and you say, give me this bread, that's your negotiation, right? <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to have perfect flowing words, but you can learn yeah. with time how to better use your words, how to speak up at the table, how to do more acting mm-hmm. by having other players go, that was really great when you said that last week or seeing their reactions or their laughter. So you learn timing. So it sounds like that example that you gave, though, uh, where, say, the person who's played a part for five years speaks up and says, oh, well, you could have done this. That sounds kind of like modeling. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's modeling or looking at examples of somebody. So if you watch, um, like, for example, one of our live plays and you really like how somebody is at the table, you could practice making your own reactions and your own statements similarly to how they do. Mm -hmm. Another thing is the feedback part, right, where somebody says, oh, I really liked when you said that. Or you see people laugh or get upset or excited in response to something you've said or did. Well, feedback's extremely important in training and development in general, because you often won't be able to get a sense of how you are doing in relation to your particular development goals unless you have an exterior source letting you know where you are in progress to that. Mm-hmm. So having players say like, oh, that was real great how you did this or in a more constructive way of going like, well, staring intently and never breaking eye contact with uh, the GM when you were doing that scene was a little intimidating compared to you trying to be charismatic like Mm -hmm. working on that or breaking eye contact might be more helpful having that type of feedback is going to help a person know in particular with social skills or trying to learn to be more charismatic that there's areas to work on absolutely and that's where we get into things like questioning and instructing as well right because it's important to question and ask people to share their skills with you and that always makes me think of things like when steve when i was talking to you at at a board game night and you all were preparing for a new larp and learning new accents Mm-hmm. Right. And that really makes me think of instructing because you go and watch someone teach you how to shape your words to, to make that accent. And then you practice it a bunch and question each other on it and get feedback on it. So it's sort of like going and rolling through this whole process. I mean, that's why it's helpful when you have, for example, like our network's Allie Grower from Warda. Mm-hmm. You know, she's teaching uh, she's doing accent classes on the side. And I think that's a great way because like just like you said in, the, in that example, having those opportunities to get that teaching and that training in is going to help even outside of just being able to sit there, replicate what you've witnessed someone else do and just get feedback. Having actual coaching is Mm -hmm. really beneficial, especially if you have a particular goal for training. Sure. And that's like, it's true in the martial and physical. It's true in dancing. It's true in how you talk in games, how your costuming is, all of those things. Mm -hmm. There are experts out there now. And as our, as our hobby grows, there are ways that you can get instruction and you can ask questions, both of your friends and both of professionals. Now, I know there's one other area of Vygotsky's zone of proximal development we haven't touched on, and that was cognitive structuring. I was wondering if you could speak to that for a second. Sure. Cognitive structuring is about building sort of schemata for how to run the world. It's about 
choosing which strategies to use when. It's about having good um, sort of instinctive reactions that you've built up from learning that this works in this way and this mm -hmm. works in that way. Does that make sense? I think it does. So it's, it's you know, kind of like we were talking about earlier with Gagne et al.'s uh, list of learning outcomes. This kind of hits into that cognitive strategies area mm -hmm. because, for example, we've been talking about examples of negotiating and learning how to get someone to be on your side. But there's going to be different times when playing softball is going to be easier and playing hardball where being very aggressive with someone and trying to get them to do something for you is going to be the right way to handle something and being much more subtle and trying to bend to their whims more than being firm and resolute might be the much more beneficial outcome. Absolutely. So learning those, seen, I think, fits in that cognitive structuring area. Absolutely. And also learning how to talk in a group of people, learning how to wait your turn, learning how to be heard when there's a lot of loud talkers in the room and you're more shy. Like it doesn't have to be like we're talking about very high level social skills, but it can also be things as simple as how do I fit in? How do I learn how to make friends? I feel like these are classic struggles in role playing, though. Mm -hmm. Like sitting down and trying to make a party be a party, not a bunch of misfits at a bar. That's all about that, right? Yeah. No, I agree. Um, but I also think even just the, and this is where the importance of that feedback part comes in, is, you know, you as, for example, the GM or the LARP, or LARP runner might have developmental goals for your players that the players sometimes might not realize you have for them. Mm -hmm. Where, for example, encouraging someone where if, for example, you have a lot of proactive and loud players and you have one or two players who are very quiet and are more reactive where you might say, hold on a second. Bradley, I would like you to pause for a second and you invite the other player forward who may not have an opportunity to talk, but you see it, they have that look in their eyes of like, I want to say something, but everyone else is speaking over me. Mm -hmm. yeah, and that's part of the job of being the spider in the center of the web, right, is to sort of hold the, the quieter people and help to lift them up mm -hmm. and maybe corral some of the louder ones. So as we always do with these episodes, I want to find a way that we can make sure that the heroes can apply this information into their own role playing and LARPing experiences. Um, and I think one of those is we briefly said, you know, make sure that you have an idea if you want to take your gaming and use it as a way to learning and develop to be mindful of that. But I think one of the ways really is having an active conversation, in your session zero or even before that with your GM or your LARP writers and say, hey, I really want to work on getting better at negotiating or getting better about having to stand up for myself or speak before a crowd. And I would like opportunities possibly where I could do that? Is that something we can do? Absolutely. And I think too, it's in remembering to balance and keep that zone of proximal development, but not get outside of it. So you want to, you want to make sure you have a character where you have some stuff that you are confident in and that you know how to do that are areas of your comfort zone. And then some things that maybe you aren't as good at and that you're working on both in terms of character depth as a person in the world that you're playing in and in terms of your own growth as a player and as a person in the real world. Because if you're playing all things that make you uncomfortable, for example. Like you have a, uh, if you're a very shy person that has a hard time speaking loudly or out in public and all your character does is talk, negotiate, and give speeches, that's going to be a really hard character to play. Totally. Has there been a time that you've played a character that maybe was a little bit outside of your own zone of proximal development? Well, my very first ever gaming character was um, a high-end martial arts expert with a lot of technical knowledge who was an amnesiac. This was the Dragon Ball Z game, right? No, this is actually a Shadowrun character. <laughs> okay. 
I was a new gamer and I walked into the room and I said, help me make a character. And so they did, but they did it from sort of a perspective of what the GM wanted to play with. And mm. um, his wife had, had a little bit of a power gaming streak and she took, because Shadowrun is a game with edges and flaws. So you spend flaw points to get enough karma to buy edges. So she had me pick some edges, some flaws that I would not have picked knowing now as an, as like a real gamer because they were high point cost. A real gamer. Well, like as a person who had experience <laughs> and was making their own choices. Yeah. So I ended up with an amnesia and like sun sensitivity and just some weird things. And I was just uncomfortable for almost six months of the game because I never knew what to do. I didn't feel like I was connected to the character or who they were because I didn't really make any of those choices myself. Yeah. I tend to play characters that are within my own comfort zone because I go to my escapism for a chance to rest. Sure. You know, I tend to pick characters that are just either like on the edge or outside of my zone, my zone of proximal development sometimes mm -hmm. when it comes to acting skills or challenges, mm -hmm. mostly so that I can develop and grow as a performer, mm. uh, as a role player, because, you know, playing, for example, you know, I've talked about my time with Fist Star a number of times, the LARP group, you know, I was playing a character that was meant to appear for all intents and purposes, uh, like emotionally distraught, highly traumatized, and someone who was very socially challenged. And part of that was because I knew it would be difficult to play that because, uh, spoiler alert, character was an assassin. Mm. But the point is that every time people play assassins and LARPs that I used to experience, they were very clearly playing an assassin. It was very obvious to everyone. Everyone knew it in or out of character. And I was trying to play it that the assassin should be the person that everyone overlooks or would think would be completely incapable of being that way. That's really cool. So that was the goal. And so it was like I challenged myself to play a character that was, for all intents and purposes, too anxious to look anyone in the eye. That's fascinating and really uh, cool. Yeah. So I mean, that was one of those examples where I was like, this is outside of my zone, my zone of comfort and a little bit outside of my zone of proximal development. But using the maybe the knowledge I have as a psychologist – and the knowledge I have from, you know, observing and even talking with the STs, getting feedback like, oh, did that work? Do, do you think you like me to change? Was there anything that was problematic? Let me know. I hey, there's that questioning that. and feedback, though. Yeah. So you are using the your zone of development with the STs as your teachers in that moment well, and the world. Well, to an extent, you could say I was intentionally shifting my zone. Mm -hmm. So yeah. recognizing at the start, my goal, my development goal was outside of the zone. Mm -hmm. And I am using those aspects that we use to develop to shift the zone and maybe widen it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think for me, the, the thing that I do that the most in is actually storytelling because for me talking in front of people, running groups and all of those skills are something that I'm very comfortable with professionally, mm -hmm. but personally it uh, gives me a lot of anxiety and stress. Um, and I love the act of storytelling and I would love to be, to feel more confident in it. So that's probably my biggest push there is I'm, I'm seeking to do more STing, more DMing and more, complex and interesting and unique stories and less modules because i tend to do a lot of modules and then I, I edit the modules i feel that i, I want to at some point get outside of just urban horror and urban fantasy because it's all i know yeah yeah we do tend to stick to that which we love well we did i mean you and i both grew up with buffy so oh my god that doesn't help no <laughs> but i think you know we, we've covered a lot of ground mm -hmm, we definitely um, have and i think we've at least given the heroes a, a lot to think about and if if you any of you heroes out there have any uh either questions or your own thoughts about how you've used role-playing to develop or grow and what you've learned from it you know please by all means reach out to us on twitter reach out to us on on the one shot discord 
And we love to talk to the heroes and hear about your experiences in this stuff yeah. and your ideas for show topics that spin off of this stuff. Absolutely. So in that case, you know, I think we've covered a lot of ground. So I think. See you in the next session. Yeah, we'll see you in the next session. If you've been enjoying Session Zero and other podcasts on our network, and you value independent creators being able to support themselves and continue to create content for you, consider supporting our network on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. Your contributions to the OneShot Network helps us to pay for the studio that we record in, the content that we use to represent our work, the hosting of the podcast on the magic internet, and all the spicy water we consume. Becoming a contributor to the One Shot Network Patreon grants you access to bonus content in the network's secret archive, such as some of our personal gaming stories and possibly some of your favorite network characters on our pretend therapy couch. There are also other perks like the Gift and Book Club, the T-Shirt Club, and many more. Please consider contributing today. Looking for something new to listen to? Try Warda. Warda is an original fantasy actual play podcast created by Ali Grauer and Drew Mergieski. It's one part Game of Thrones, two parts Downton Abbey, served on the rocks with a twist of Agatha Christie. Discover magic, mystery, and more than a little sociopolitical commentary along the way. The city holds a thousand stories. What will yours be? Heroes, we would love to hear from you and hear your ideas about our show. You can find us on Twitter at Session Zero Pod, or you can email us at Session Zero at OneShotPodcast.com. The song you hear right now is Hikari by I Love Brandon off his album Earth and Sky. If you would like to hear more of his work, visit EYELoveBrandon.com or find him on Spotify, SoundCloud, Twitter, or wherever else you like to find your chill beats to listen to podcasts to. Remember, heroes, Session Zero is for sharing information, not for therapy. If you feel like you need support, check out Psychology Today's Find a Therapist database. If you're experiencing a crisis, head into the emergency room or text CONNECT to 741741 from anywhere in the United States. Be safe out there, and we'll see you in the next session.